0: I think what draws people into conspiracy thinking, especially with regard to the farther-fetched and totalizing conspiracy theories, and for that matter the grand narratives of religion, is the comfort that is found, often ironically, in the sense that someone or something is in control of events. Things are unfolding for a purpose, whether good or nefarious. We aren't just spinning on a molten ball along an unplanned trajectory through time and space, are we? Who's in charge here? I want to speak with the manager. Closer to home, what if we are theorizing about our own thoughts and behaviors along the same self-comforting lines? Perhaps it feels better to assume we are in more control of ourselves than we really are, to hold on to the conspiracy theory that we are the conscious minds of human beings really and truly in charge. We are the conspirators pulling the strings of our own fate. Or are we? How much do we know about the reasons we do things? It seems from normal life that the basic procedures and behaviors in which we engage are a means to a rational end, one which we understand and undertake with reason. If I want to write something down, an idea that just occurred to me, or something I've just remembered that I have to do, I look around for a pen. If you walk into the room during such a moment and say, what are you doing? I'll say, I'm looking for a pen, I need to write down such and such for such and such a reason. This is all quite mundane, but suppose I was absent of mind and happened to be holding a pen in my hand with no express purpose, and you walked in and asked, what are you doing with that pen? I would be apt to look down at the pen in my hand, shrug, and declare, I don't know, it was just there and I was fiddling with it. I'm not deceiving you, but in fact I've just come up with that explanation in the moment. Maybe I wasn't even aware that the pen was in my hand at all. I'm answering your query with the statement of a plausible hypothesis, and having made my answer, I guess I'm satisfied enough with it, and I hold it to be a true account of cause and effect. I read about cases along these lines from time to time that make me wonder, though. Do we often confabulate as a means of rationalizing our behaviors? Maybe we don't know as much as we think we do about the things we do and say. To begin. I'll share with you from a chapter of Daniel Wegner's book, The Illusion of Conscious Will. The chapter is called Protecting the Illusion, by which Wegner means the illusion of conscious will. I'm not convinced that conscious will is, after all, an illusion, but the chapter is apt to the present discussion. He writes, quote, People who can't answer the question, what are you doing, are generally considered asleep, drugged or crazy. Knowing what it is doing is a highly valued characteristic in an agent and the aspiration to be an ideal agent must drive people to claim such knowledge a great deal of the time. It may in fact push them to claim they did things intentionally when this is provably false. A fine example of such filling in of intentions occurs in some responses to post-hypnotic suggestion. People who have been hypnotized can be asked to follow some instruction later, when they have awakened, and in some instances such post-hypnotic suggestions will be followed with remarkable faithfulness. In one example, Mall. 1889, recounted saying to a hypnotized woman, "'After you wake, you will take a book from the table and put it on the bookshelf.' She awoke and did what he had told her. He asked her what she was doing when this happened, and she answered, "'I do not like to see things so untidy. The shelf is the place for the book, and that is why I put it there.' Mall remarked that this subject specifically did not recall that she had been given a post-hypnotic suggestion. So, embarking on a behavior for which no ready explanation came to mind, she freely invented one in the form of a prior intention." If this observation of a person confabulating an explanation for their behavior were only seen in hypnosis, especially a second-hand story related over a hundred years ago, I would remain, I think, unmoved by it. But as you will see, the situation occurs in other cases. Most relevant and interesting are the split-brain cases. Joseph Ledoux wrote about his work with the split brain patient P.S. at Dartmouth with Michael Gazzaniga. In the Cognitive Neuroscience of Mind, he writes quote, In the process of testing the interactions between the two sides, one day in our camper trailer lab, Mike made an important observation. We were giving the right hemisphere written commands stand, wave, laugh, and P.S. responded appropriately in each case. Had Mike not been there, that's probably as far as it would have gone. We would have been happy to have shown that the right hemisphere could respond to verbal commands. But Mike's incredibly fast and creative mind immediately realized there was more to it. He started asking P.S. why he was doing what he was doing. Remember, only the left hemisphere could talk, so when the command to the right hemisphere was stand, P.S. would explain his action by saying he needed to stretch. When it was wave, he said that he thought he saw a friend. When it was laugh, he said we were funny. That was the birth of Mike's theory of consciousness as an interpreter. A reason for doing these things was made up to justify the impulse to take a certain action. Ludeau goes on, For the left hemisphere of a split-brain patient, everything done by the right hemisphere is an unconscious act. Mike proposed that our behaviors are controlled by systems that function unconsciously, and that a key function of consciousness is to make sense of, interpret our behavior. This was his theory of the interpreter." Gazaniga describes this set of studies in his book Tales from Both Sides of the Brain. He says, quote, after we presented a stimulus to one hemisphere or the other, we would ask, what did you see? It wasn't until 20 years later that we finally wondered, what does the left-speaking hemisphere think about all these things the right hemisphere is doing? After all, the left hemisphere has no clue why the behaviors are happening. Finally, it dawned on us, in that cold trailer, Joseph and I asked, why did you do what you just did? In simply changing the question asked of the patient, a virtual torrent of new information and insight flowed. Though the left hemisphere had no clue, it would not be satisfied to state it did not know. It would guess, prevaricate, rationalize, and look for cause and effect, but it would always come up with an answer that fit the circumstances. In my opinion, it is the most stunning result from split-brain research." The case from split-brain patients, of which there are other stories like the one I just relayed, is interesting, even though it is much less dramatic than what might occur post-hypnotically. Gazaniga certainly thought so. Suppose I were to ask you, why do you keep looking over there? Wouldn't you think that you would answer if you hadn't even noticed that you'd been looking anywhere? I don't know. I didn't notice I was doing that. It's pretty striking to imagine that you would confabulate an explanation, that you would say, I thought I saw something moving around over there. Maybe you would though, and maybe you'd believe your own bullshit. The claim is totally unfalsifiable, but in the case of split brain, the outside observer knows more than the left brain does, so the investigator can falsify your confabulated explanation. If confabulation is the rule and not the exception, it might have something really important to teach us about ourselves. Perhaps we do a lot of covering for our unconscious motivations, and maybe the rule of confabulation can, at least in part, explain why split-brain patients behave so normally. Maybe we are all just used to post-hoc self-explanations of our mysterious behaviors. Bertrand Russell wrote in The Analysis of Mind, quote, The first set of facts to be adduced against the common-sense view of desire are those studied by psychoanalysis. In all human beings, but most markedly in those suffering from hysteria and certain forms of insanity, we find what are called unconscious desires, which are commonly regarded as showing self-deception. Most psychoanalysts pay little attention to the analysis of desire, being interested in discovering by observation what it is that people desire, rather than in discovering what actually constitutes desire. I think the strangeness of what they report would be greatly diminished if it were expressed in the language of a behaviorist theory of desire, rather than in the language of everyday beliefs. The general description of the sort of phenomena that bear on our present question is as follows. A person states that his desires are so-and-so, and that it is these desires that inspire his actions, but the outside observer perceives that his actions are such as to realize quite different ends from those which he avows, and that these different ends are such as he might be expected to desire. Generally, they are less virtuous than his professed desires, and are therefore less agreeable to profess than these are. It is accordingly supposed that they really exist as desires for ends, but in a subconscious part of the mind, which the patient refuses to admit into consciousness for fear of having to think ill of himself. There are no doubt many cases to which such a supposition is applicable without obvious artificiality. But the deeper the Freudians delve into the underground regions of instinct, the further they travel from anything resembling conscious desire, and the less possible it becomes to believe that only positive self-deception conceals from us what we really wish for things which are abhorrent to our explicit life. In the cases in question, we have a conflict between the outside observer and the patient's consciousness. The whole tendency of psychoanalysis is to trust the outside observer rather than the testimony of introspection." Not to invest too much stock in psychoanalytical thinking, but the split-brain experiments at least give some credence, though they occurred many decades later than Freud and Russell, to the idea that people are happy to invent explanations for behavior they know nothing about. It is as if the subject feels it necessary to advocate for themselves, since they are, under normal circumstances, the one in the best position to give an account of the unexplained behavior. In the cases of which Russell is writing, the account they give is one that accords with their sense of self-worth, so they might be self-deceptive about their deeper motivations. Consider the following case. A person with whom you work is tapping their pencil annoyingly on their desk to bother you while you're trying to concentrate. If you were to ask this person to stop, they'd probably stop, and they'd be thinking, what's his problem? Why does he always pester me about every little thing I do? It's harassment. So who is the good guy and who is the bad? Is the pencil tapper being passive aggressive to get on your nerves? What if the pencil tapper doesn't know why he is tapping the pencil? Maybe it has nothing to do with you at all. But more interestingly, maybe subconsciously, he actually is trying to annoy you, but he doesn't know that. He doesn't even know that he's an asshole. In fact, he is quite convinced, and reasonably so, that you are the asshole. After all, it's just a little tapping. We might be giving post-hoc explanations to ourselves for what we do all the time. That is the premise for Gazzaniga's Interpreter Hypothesis for Consciousness. We are consciously perceiving our behavior just like anything else we might perceive in the environment. We notice cause and effect and just assume we know what is going on. Along these lines Gilbert Ryle wrote in the concept of mind, Now in almost the same way as a person may be in this sense, alive to what he is doing, he may be alive to what someone else is doing. In the serial operation of listening to a sentence or a lecture delivered by someone else, the listener, like the speaker, does not altogether forget, yet nor does he have constantly to recall the earlier parts of the talk, and he is in some degree prepared for the part still to come, though he does not have to tell himself how he expects the sentence or lecture to go on. Certainly, his frame of mind is considerably different from that of the speaker, since the speaker is sometimes creative, or inventive, while the listener is passive and receptive. The listener may be frequently surprised to find the speaker saying something, while the speaker is only seldom surprised. The listener may find it hard to keep track of the course taken by the sentences and arguments, while the speaker can do this quite easily. While the speaker intends to say certain, fairly specific things, his hearer can anticipate only roughly what sort of topics are going to be discussed." Here, Ryle is comparing being the speaker in a situation and being the listener in order to suggest that both are a lot alike. He goes on, but the differences are differences of degree, not of kind. The superiority of the speaker's knowledge of what he is doing over that of the listener does not indicate that he has privileged access to facts of a type inevitably inaccessible to the listener, but only that he is in a very good position to know what the listener is often in a very poor position to know. The turns taken by a man's conversation do not startle or perplex his wife as much as they had surprised and puzzled his fiance. Nor do close colleagues have to explain themselves to each other as much as they have to explain themselves to their new pupils. I sometimes get the feeling that I am as much an audience to my own speech as anyone else. This is what Ryle is getting at. Maybe that really is more true than we know. Inevitably, I am less surprised by what I say than someone else might be. But that is just because I am more used to myself, to the thoughts I have, and the kinds of things I would say. And yet I am responsible for what I say or don't say. At least that's the way the game is played. The thoughts and the words seem to come of their own accord, and I am just the channel through which they pass. David Hume wrote, We feel that our actions are subject to our will on most occasions, and imagine we feel that the will itself is subject to nothing. Because when by a denial of it we are provoked to try, we feel that it moves easily every way, and produces an image of itself even on that side, on um, which it did not settle. This image, or faint motion, we persuade ourselves could, at that time, have been completed into the thing itself; because should that be denied, we find upon a second trial that at present it can. We consider not that upon the fantastical desire of shewing liberty is here the motive of our actions, and it seems certain that, however we may imagine we feel a liberty within ourselves, a spectator can commonly infer our actions from our motives and character, and even where he cannot, he concludes in general that he might, were he perfectly acquainted with every circumstance of our situation and temper, and the most secret springs of our complexion and disposition. Now this is the very essence of necessity. This is ground that I've covered on the podcast before. The thing that is new that I seek to consider here is the means and extent to which we deceive ourselves. I am having conscious experiences. That is undeniable. Jesse is speaking, or writing, or having a sandwich. I have the sense that it is I who speaks, who writes, who has a sandwich. I have argued on previous occasions not only that consciousness must serve a function, but that a unified consciousness is the only thing which can understand the full picture. I have repeatedly admitted that the picture has no guarantee of being an accurate representation of the objective world. I've gone even further to insist that the picture is, of necessity, inaccurate. Consciousness is composed of meanings, and meanings obtain between and among things, perceptual or conceptual, in the form of relationships. I am a witness to those meanings. They are painted for me upon the canvas of my being but I also experience the causal power of my will. I plan to do something and then do it. In such cases, I may be unaware of the deepest motivations for wanting to do what I want to do. Nevertheless, though, I do want to do them. Joseph Ledoux and Michael Gazzaniga's discoveries of left-brain confabulation seem to show that we claim authorship for actions quite beyond our understanding or will. Thus, I propose there are unconscious agents in the brain, at least unconscious to you and me, I suggest that I am an agent of Jesse's behavior, but I am not alone. There are agents unknown to me with which I collaborate in the behaviors Jesse manifests. Because they are unknown to me and because I experience myself as an agent, I erringly assume that I am the sole agent. And encountered with an inquiry as to what I am doing and why, I hypothesize based on all that I know about the experience I am having. This maintains my sense of solitary control and wholeness. I am like the general that thinks it was he who vanquished the enemy troops and took occupation of the contested territory, this despite the fact that the general never raised his rifle. Pondering this analogy, I wonder if perhaps I have not been gracious in my attribution of Jesse's achievements. To the extent that I, that Jesse, has had success in his endeavors, I have been too hasty in self-congratulation. I should be grateful to the unconscious agents for all they have done. Medals all around, lads. You've done well. There is one area of life to which this mystery seems to definitely apply. The area of affect, of mood. When I am feeling down and depressed, I search for the reasons and often, as not, come up with some reasonable candidates. But I don't really know why I am feeling the way I am. In order to feel a measure of self-knowledge and control, I introspect. But as Russell said, I should perhaps not trust the testimony of my own introspection. Recall that emotional responses travel by subcortical routes. An anecdote from Gazaniga demonstrates this well. In Tales from Both Sides of the Brain, he writes, quote, Emotional states appear to transfer between the hemispheres subcortically, and this transfer is not affected by severing the corpus callosum. Thus, even though all of the perceptions and experiences leading up to that emotional state may be isolated to the right hemisphere, both hemispheres will feel the emotion. Though the left hemisphere will have no clue why or where the emotion came from, it will always try to explain it away. For example, I showed a scary fire safety video about a guy getting pushed into a fire to the right hemisphere of VP. When asked what she saw, she said, I don't really know what I saw, I think just a white flash. But when asked if it made her feel any emotion, she said, I don't really know why, but I'm kind of scared. I feel jumpy. I think maybe I don't like this room. Or maybe it's you, you're getting me nervous." She then turned to one of the research assistants and said, "'I know I like Dr. Gazaniga, but right now I'm scared of him for some reason.'" The left hemisphere felt the negative valence of the emotion but had no knowledge of what the cause was. The interesting thing is that lack of knowledge does not stop it from coming up with a making sense explanation that fits the circumstances. I was standing there and she was upset. Her interpreter put the two together into a cause-and-effect conclusion. I must have scared her. How familiar does this sound? I have a feeling, a mood, a deep emotion, and all I can do is hand wave an explanation. It is like there is something inside of me that is trying to get through to me, to tell me something. It has no means of speaking to me. It can only set off an emotional alarm. While the thought of it is kind of scary, the alternative might be worse still. At least I, as blind and stupid as I am, am not all alone in looking out for Jesse's best interests."